It is wonderful for us to know that God's truth will stand forever and that we can build our lives upon it. Thank you all for, for leading us uh, in, uh, in the music this morning especially. We're moving back to the fifth commandment this week to continue our look at the family relationships and the larger applications of God's commandment to honor your father and your mother. We heard a bit from Pastor Steve on this commandment on Father's Day two weeks ago, and we'll explore a bit more this morning what else God would teach us. Listen to the commandment again from Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I'll read it one more time. It's so short. Honor your father and your mother that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. In addition to this commandment, we're going to look at a couple additional texts this morning. Uh, In Ephesians 6, you can turn there with me if you'd like to. It's on page 829 if you're using the the, uh, blue Bibles in the pews as well. There's a sermon outline, uh, as there always is, in the bulletin, which helps us to stay together. Uh, And we'll look specifically at a few verses in Matthew 10 a little bit later. But hear the word of God. Uh, from Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we want to come as people who are living in submission to your word, who understand that your truth is, uh, is forever and unchanging, and that your truth is what orients our lives and what we uh, submit to and what we love as your people. Help us to love this part of your truth this morning. Help us to uh, enjoy it and help us to be changed by it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In thinking about this topic, I was thinking about how are the relationships between parents and children portrayed in our culture or in the movies that we, that we see, in the television shows that we watch. How, how do people uh, show what the relationship, what's normal actually, in the relationship between parents and children? I was thinking particularly of this whole genre of shows that star kids or teenagers that are about kids and teenagers. The kids are the focus of the show, and that's normal, I guess. Um, You know, the kids are also the ones who are watching. But how do they relate to their parents? Sometimes I think the parents are portrayed with weird habits. They're kind of just the comic relief. You know, they, they have their own little foibles that, the, that, you know, make the jokes go in the show. Um, but they don't really do anything serious or have, have a real, you know, interaction with their kids. Sometimes uh, parents are, are actually made to look kind of silly or foolish or mean as compared to the kids. The kids are the smart ones, right? And the parents are sort of the, the idiots. Uh, sometimes the parents step in and give good advice and the kids appreciate it and actually learn something. Those are the ones I want my kids to watch. 
sometimes the parents are completely absent. And as I was thinking about this, Disney you know, movies have a particular habit of killing off one or both parents. Early on in the movie, think of Bambi, The Fox and the Hound, uh, Finding Nemo, right? Frozen, you know, that Disney has this habit of doing that. And or making the adoptive parent, parental figure, someone who is evil, like Snow White or Cinderella or Tangled. So according to the internet, 35 of 54, so that's 65% of the animated feature films that were produced by Walt Disney himself had a primary character with a dead, missing, or single parent. Isn't that interesting? It's something of a theme that comes up. And so as we think about what's normal for us in parent-child relationships and how are those portrayed to us, this is some interesting information, right? Sometimes children in these Disney movies rebel against their parent, and everyone suffers greatly as a result. Think of Ariel in The Little Mermaid, right? Recently, in our family, we watched Moana, which is one of the newest Disney princess stories, this one with this Pacific Island theme, where the coming-of-age daughter feels the pull to explore the ocean around her island, but her father, who's the chief, has forbidden exploring out of his own fear and the fear for the safety of his people. But the island faces a crisis, and Moana is stuck. She can't figure out how she can reconcile her desire to help her people and her need to go beyond the lagoon out into the ocean where there may actually be fish to save the people with her father's insistence. She can't reconcile that desire with her father's insistence that she must never venture out beyond the lagoon. What should Moana do? Well, sort of through the subversive encouragement of her dying grandmother and a bit of help from her mother, Moana ventures out onto the high seas in disobedience to her father. And, of course, she ends up saving the day for her people. Sorry if I just ruined the movie for you. (laughs) Moana is in... A dilemma, right? She loves her father. She wants to obey him. She is trying to respect her grandmother's wishes. She feels compelled to try to save her people. And she concludes that this is more important than obeying her father in this instance, right? Circumstances have conspired such that Moana is kind of forced to disobey. And in the end, her father is shown to be wrong. Now, I'm not suggesting that movies should portray parents as perfect at all. But it's important, I think, that we recognize this theme that's very common in our culture that reverses what's normal and makes the children the teachers of their parents. Now, I know that I learn a lot from being a parent. I know that I learn a lot from our kid. That's, in a way, that's very understandable. But in another way, we know in the normal course of life, as we think about life, as we think about the Bible... It shows us that children are to learn from their parents and the parents are given the role of instructing and teaching and being responsible for that for their kids. That's a part of God's gracious command for us. The Ten Commandments tell us how to live in God's world and that's the case with this commandment and all of them. And so in this section in Ephesians 6, when Paul is talking about the different relationships between husband and wife and slave and master, he addresses children and he addresses parents. 
And he wants to make, help them understand how this commandment applies to their lives. Paul has been addressing these different members of the household. Actually, last week we read the, the section following. Uh, verses 5 through 9, and Pastor Steve preached about the value of work in relationship to the rest required on the Sabbath and the fourth commandment. So let's look here at this text just for a few minutes um, and make some observations. First, what does the word honor mean in Ephesians, and what does it mean in the original uh, in Exodus? The Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament has a number of additional meanings related to this idea of being heavy, or being weighty, uh, or being glorious or rich. It's a common Hebrew word. To honor someone thus has this mental connection as seeing something as heavy, as weighty, as glorious. We have a similar connection in saying that something weighs heavily on us. We feel the burden of it, that it's important. It's the opposite of treating something lightly. Right? If someone treats something lightly, they don't honor it. They don't regard it or give it due consideration. So we get a, a word picture here, right? This picture of heaviness is related to how much we esteem or honor something. That's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Greek word that's used um, from the, in the uh, Greek translations of the Old Testament as well as what's used here in Ephesians 6 um, doesn't necessarily have the same connotation of weight and heaviness. Instead, it can also mean to set a price for something or to value something. And so it's used in the New Testament in Matthew 27 as the price that was foretold by Jeremiah for the field that was purchased in connection with the 30 pieces of, of silver that was given to Judas for betraying Jesus. So the picture here is that the value of our price of something is connected to its importance. Something honorable is worth paying full price for. And so I think understanding these original words and sort of the ideas that would have been connected to them in their original languages help us, help us fill out and round out the picture of what it means today to honor someone, what the Bible is actually talking about to treat someone, to treat, in this case, our parents, with care and respect, which is, metaphorically speaking, to value them, to see them as valuable and also as weighty and glorious and important. Paul addresses both children and fathers in this passage. We'll look at those in turn. For Paul, the background of obedience, so he's telling children to obey, and then he's telling them why. Because it's connected with honoring and connected with the fifth commandment. Part of what it means to honor your parents means that you obey them. So the, and the idea of obedience uh, in this interesting word is a compound verb, which means it has the word for listening or hearing connected or with the preposition that means by or under. So placing oneself under the instruction of another one is obedience, right? It's a picture of how we approach the Bible and God's commandments. And Pastor Steve has been talking about submission in relation to the Ten Commandments. And this is an illustration of that within the, the words itself. To be hearing under means that we are placing ourselves under the commandments and 
That's what it means to obey them. Jesus modeled this for us in his incarnation. Luke 2.51 tells us that Jesus was obedient to his parents. If anyone knew better than his parents, it was Jesus. And yet the Bible tells us that he chose to be obedient. We find that the New Testament highlights this command for children to obey their parents in lots of places. I've just collected a smattering of them, but there are many, many places we could look at. And what may seem surprising is that disobedient to parents is at le- on at least two of the lists of really bad sins in the New Testament. Romans 1 describes the end of one without God. And it goes like this. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful they invent ways of doing evil they disobey their parents would you have put disobeying their parents in that list alongside murder and god hating and inventing all kinds of evil is the sin of being disobedient to parents second timothy 3 has a similar list of sins that includes disobedient Uh, to parents in the context of the terrible times that will mark the last days. One of the signs of the godlessness of the last days, Timothy tells us, or Paul tells to Timothy, is that people are disobedient to their parents. Jesus sharply criticized the Pharisees for breaking the fifth commandment as he was addressing them in Matthew 15 because they had developed this tradition in which they could kind of designate their possessions to the temple and say that these things were then being used for God, and so then they wouldn't use their resources to actually support their parents. Right? They had come up with a tradition, and they were putting the tradition over God's command to honor their parents. And so Jesus is having none of that. And he says, he calls them on it, and he says, you've, uh, you've nullified the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition, which is based on their own greed. So we can see from these examples, and of course there are many more, Jesus was serious about this command, so was Paul. It's a temptation when we're young to disobey and dishonor our parents. It's a temptation when we're older to not support our parents and thus dishonor them. In case you think that we are always to obey without question or sense of conscience, of course there's a safeguard here. Paul says that children are to obey in the Lord. Meaning, the parents should not convince their child, as a child or as an adult, to disobey God's commandments. And so giving respect and honor is not the same thing as worshiping or seeing as ultimate, obviously. And we'll look more at this further. So we can debate in the sermon discussion class if Moana was justified in disobeying her father in order to save her people and what would guide us in making that kind of ethical choice this is what's uh, asked of children now let's look at parents verse four fathers do not exasperate your children instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the lord fathers and of course by extension here we mean mothers and even grandparents and and people who are caring for children are called to bring up their children in the training and instruction of the lord training and instruction Uh, are required instruction means to teach our children 
Training involves our instruction being consistent and then followed up with discipline. This is the responsibility of parents before God, and it's a loving gift to our children. The writer of Hebrews describes how discipline may be unpleasant at the time, but it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The discipline, correction, rebuke that we receive from someone who loves us is a gift. The discipline or correction or rebuke that any of us receive from someone who loves us is a gift. And the fact that God disciplines his children for our good gives us a pattern to emulate as parents with our kids. There's a safeguard here, too. Fathers are commanded not to exasperate their children. We must not be overly demanding, critical, and harsh, picking and pointing and provoking them to anger. The parallel passage in Colossians 3 reminds us that parents can discourage their children. And we can take away from them the strength that they need to face the challenges of the world around us. As parents, we make mistakes in both directions. It's easy, I think, for for me, for us, to lose this balance. I think it's easy for us to stress our kids out. I think it's easy for us not to be consistent. And I need to be aware of this tendency in me and not cave into their demands and not withhold the right kind of discipline. How about for you? It's a challenge for all of us who are in the midst of it. And I know even after our children leave home, we still feel this tension, how much advice to give, how much to make them want uh, to do the things that we think they should do, right? Again, it's God and his word that give us the pattern of how to parent. I couldn't find an exact quote, but I've heard it often in many different settings, that our earthly fathers tend to be the model that we have for our heavenly father. In other words, we tend, at least subconsciously, to think that God is something like our earthly father. That's a weighty thing, isn't it? If your earthly father is harsh, then it may be harder for you to think of God as being graciously disposed towards you. For some of us, father doesn't have fond memories, and that can influence the way that we see God and the way that we can see all kinds of authorities. And we have to let God's word tell us what he's really like and what it means that he is a father who never forsakes us and never gives up on us and always loves us. As we think about how to apply this and how does this commandment work, I wanted to to bring two other applications beyond the family unit to think about this commandment in society and to think about it in the family of God, that is, in the church. So first, one particular application of the fifth commandment beyond the immediate family is to understand that the relationship of honor that's commanded for children to parents has an analogy in all kinds of relationships of authority. And if you read the Westminster Catechisms on this subject, there's much, they, they, it's really a strong emphasis of the catechism to understand how to, to, to teach how do we relate to those in authority over us, how do we relate to those who are under our authority, and how God is uh, requiring that from us in the world 
in which we live. I, I can't spend a lot of time here because, and, and last week we really looked at this example from Ephesians 6 of slaves and masters and how the obedience required uh, for slaves to show their earthly master reflects the kind of obedience and respect that they're to show in relation to Christ. Romans 13 also teaches about how children, uh, how Christians are called to relate even to non-Christian governments and authorities. Again, we find ourselves as people both under authority and in authority over others. And we can be tempted to sin in both directions. I think of this um, maybe in a story. When I was in seminary, I worked at a UPS hub for a number of years outside of St. Louis. I was part of the Teamsters Union 688. I was part of joining uh, and working there. And it was very interesting for me to see in such a big organization how labor unions both prevent sin and promote sin, right? Management really would abuse workers in pursuit of profit if not for the protection of unions. I saw that very clearly in a hub with thousands of employees and millions of packages going every which way, every day. Supervisors would, would abuse their employees if they didn't have the protections of the union. I also saw how unions protect lazy workers, how unions can encourage people not to work hard and do their best, right? Selfishness exists both for those who are in authority and for those who are under their authority. And the situation has analogies in all kinds of different spheres in our lives, doesn't it? The idea, I think, is similar to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6 about masters and slaves and about children and parents. The bottom line is that God is the authority, and ultimately all of us will answer to him about how well we exercised authority over people and how well we submitted to the authorities that are over us. That's an application of this commandment in society. Let's look at, as well at the family of God. Jesus said some things about family and family relationships that would have absolutely stunned his audience. Here's an example from Matthew 10. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then in verse 34, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the context... Jesus is sending out his disciples into to do ministry. And Jesus tells them that the arrival of his kingdom changes everything and it costs them everything. Jesus says things that are the height of arrogance 
if they were not true, right? He says, I'm more important than anything else and anyone else. Right? Jesus puts the family in a different place. He relativizes the family unit. In Mark 3, he says, Whoever does, does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He says in this passage in Matthew 10, that family members may kill one another because of the arrival of Jesus. His followers may be betrayed by their own parents and children unto death. And this is absolutely true in some parts of our world right now. And we can read stories about it, in which following Jesus may cost you everything, your life and your family and everything else. And so if this is the case, if this is what Jesus is doing, then we can't idolize the family. We can't make, church, make choices about Uh, church involvement or about other things based just upon our family's needs because we're part of a larger family in the church. Jesus has placed us into a different family. It's a crazy family. It's a messed up family for sure. Right? But the father of this family is the best. He loves his children in such a radical way that changes everything. And we have an older brother who gave his life that we could be in this family, that we could be adopted into it. I'm going to mention that this commandment also has a promise. As it says in Ephesians 6, it's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. This isn't an airtight promise of long life, right? As though uh, the better you obeyed your parents, the longer you live, Right? But it's a general principle that receiving godly instruction and discipline leads to the gaining of life, both here and in the life to come. And particularly the Proverbs, and I've given you a number of them there. We're not going to look at them in turn. Some of them have phenomenal pictures, word pictures, of what it looks like to gain life through obedience and what it looks like to gain death through disobedience and to disregard instruction. God gives us a promise here, an encouragement that we would seek life as we uh, listen and obey. As we think about how to apply the text this morning, I just wanted to lead us through a couple things. I want you to know something. I want you to know that God has ordained a variety of authorities in your life. God has placed you under their care. God has also probably given you authority over others. So know that there are levels of authority all around you. And it's important for us to reflect on that. I want you to know that authority isn't a bad word necessarily. It's part of the nature and structure of our world. And that God is the ultimate authority. I want you to believe this morning that God is sovereign in your life. And that includes the authorities that you are under and the people that you are in authority over. So don't just know about your authorities, right? But believe that God is over all of that and that he has placed you in positions of influence. Even for our kids and our teenagers, believe that you aren't too young to be a leader among your friends and towards those who are younger than you. We've seen in this church 
how effective our teenagers can be in leading our younger children in our VBS, in our fall festival, on our mission trips. I mean, we seriously could not do VBS without those under 25. We couldn't. It would be absolutely impossible. We have so much help from so many of our young people who invest in the lives of children, and the children love it. They're watching, and it's so encouraging when they, the children pick up on what it means to walk with Jesus through the lives of our teenagers. Finally, I want you to consider how to exercise what I'm calling loving authority. I came up with this title because it, I think it captures both sides of the coin. We're called to exercise loving authority, that is power that's marked by love, in every position of influence that we have. So care for your children, lead your employees, manage your organization, run for the student council, all with this idea that God calls you to love everyone and to use your power wisely for his kingdom. On the flip side, we're also called to love the authorities that we are under, to serve each one as unto the Lord, praying for our leaders and giving them the honor and respect required. And so consider these questions. Who's looking up to you? How can you point them to Jesus? Who are you serving? And in the same way, how can you, as a faithful and honest child or worker, how can you point them to Jesus as well? Our world, it seems, has become more polarized, more cynical. And we can just look, and we can look just like the world if we're constantly critical towards those who are in power, at whatever level, at the family, in the church, in the neighborhood, in the government. We have a built-in natural suspicion of leadership in many realms. It comes naturally to us as humans. We have an extra abundance of it because we're Americans, right? as we celebrate our, you know, the anniversary of our country, right? Built on rebellion. We don't want to submit anymore, right? So under, rather than unduly criticizing and undermining those in authority, God calls us to listen and to be respectful in the Lord. There's a safeguard there in the Lord to those who are over us. And likewise, God calls us to be nurturing and kind to those who are under us. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table of the Lord, and we focus on the most loving exercise of authority that's ever been undertaken. It's the most radical episode of Undercover Boss. As the Lord of the universe lays aside his glory and came down to live as a faithful God-man under human authorities, But Colossians 2 tells us, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's what we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table. We look forward in hope to a time when authority will be exercised perfectly, and there will be no more conflict. Every knee will bow to Jesus, and joyfully we will celebrate in the family of God. Amen. Let's pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning for your sovereign hand in our lives and for the ways that we can see uh, and the ways that we can't even see uh, what you're doing 
in our midst, the opportunities that you give us, and uh, uh, both as those who are leaders and as those who are followers. We pray that you would give us wisdom. We need wisdom desperately in all of these relationships. We need wisdom to know how to understand uh, our world and how to be a witness for you in it. So we ask that you would give wisdom to your people. We pray especially for our children, that you would help them uh, to obey and to grow up in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. We pray for our parents at whatever stage of life, that you would give us wisdom in how to not exasperate our children, but to love and nurture and instruct them. Help us to do so also as a body, that we would work together to support one another. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.